thanks for clicking play on this episode of PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. In this episode, author and historian Mpatumi Ntabeni chats with Sharon Dedua Otto regarding her latest book, Ada's Realm. In a small village in West Africa, in what will one day become Ghana, Ada gives birth again. And again, the baby does not live. As she grieves the loss of her child, Portuguese traders become the first white men to arrive in the village, an event that will bear terrible repercussions for Ada and her kin. Centuries later, Ada will become a mathematical genius, Ada Lovelace. Ada, a prisoner forced into prostitution in a Nazi concentration camp, and Ada, a young pregnant Ghanaian woman with a new British passport who arrives in Berlin in 2019 for a fresh start. Ada is not one woman, but many, and she is also all woman. She revolves in orbits looping from one century and from one place to the next. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Mputumindabene. I am a writer who stays in Cape Town, South Africa. It is my greatest pleasure today to welcome in our virtual space Sharon Odua Otto, who was actually born in, in the UK. And then in the 90s, like most of us, when the Berlin Wall, I suppose, was falling down, she went to Germany and then she found herself that she had the greatest of affinity with the German language and she loved the place. She was then a prominent activist and, and, and a writer who has written a lot of essays and fiction in both English and German now. In 2016, her short story, A Grotab Sits Down, won the Agenbach Bergmann Prize, one of German's highest literary honors. In 2021, she published her first novel, which in English is actually translated as Ada's Room. That's the U.S. title. In the rest of us in South Africa and the U.K., it's translated as Ada's Realm, which I like because it's much more capacious than just the room. Good afternoon, Sharon. How is Berlin? Good afternoon. Thank you for the invitation and for the introduction. It's very sunny here. It's nice. Oh, at least the, the spring has finally sprung in Europe. Well, I can bet you that my autumn is warmer than your spring there. Yeah, so I don't want to start getting jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. I was blown apart by your book. It is really no small thing when I say it's a very capacious, and I'm sure a lot of people have said uh, ambitious book. I have not read anything like it before. It literally goes from century to century, starting from the 15th century, is it? And yes. then the person who is the protagonist, Ada. Why actually did you choose the American title, The Ada's Room? <laughs> I didn't choose. <laughs> actually, um, sometimes authors are in this position that they write their novels and then the decision about what the cover looks like and what the title is, is taken by somebody else. I was involved a lot in the discussions, but um, yeah. with the discussion around the translation of the title, that was interesting because the person who translated my novel from German to English, his name is John Cho Polizzi. He actually chose the title Ada's Realm. And I really liked that. I agree with you. I like the way that realm signifies something much bigger that stretches over 
territories, but also time spans. Exactly, because it gives us the sense of what what is happening in the book. When they call it a room, especially when you read the book, because yeah. one of the narrators of the book is actually a room. It's as if now they want to concentrate only on that section. The German word can do both. The German word Raum can signify realm, and it can also signify this small room. So, And in the US, they felt that realm was more like science fiction. That's why they didn't like realm so much. Honest, I quite like that there's two titles because I like that I get to talk about, you know, what a title means, what a particular reading, the way that you can read this book and that there is a difference that the, the, the US version is slightly different, slightly different um, spellings and grammar and some decisions were made in an editorial way that's different to the UK version. So I like that they have two different titles. Oh, okay, that's good. Then I was I was about to say, is there is there a loss in America? I like the room better. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. In any case, uh, you were born in the UK and uh, you have a Ghanaian ancestry. Why did you decide to write uh, in German? I mean, I assume that for now German is your second, if not third, language. So why did you yeah. decide to stretch yourself in in that sense? I honestly asked myself the same question <laughs> while I was writing. The short version of the story is, as you already mentioned, I won a prize. I've been living in Germany since 2006 now, permanently. And in 2016, okay. I won a prize for a short story that I'd written. And it just so happened that I'd written that short story in German. I'd been asked to make a comment about life in Germany. I decided to write a satire. And then somebody asked me if I would like to put this prize into a competition. So because I'd won this prize, it was literally the first story I'd written in German. I suddenly had all this media attention and I had an agent now and I had um, a book contract. And it was clear to me that this story that I'd written was going to be expanded to a, a novel and that I would stay in the German language because I think it does something quite different to a story depending on what language you write in. And I am a person who comes from outside of Germany and I'm making a statement with the story by writing it in German, right? I'm saying I'm claiming this language. I've got both feet firmly on German soil. I'm raising my children in Germany. So it was like a statement to say, no, I can also be a German language author, not in the sense that I'm so good at writing, just in the sense that my language, the choice of words, even the storyline that I've chosen isn't something that's typically been done in Germany before. Writers like me, you can count on one hand the number of black German-speaking authors in Germany. And so who, are, who have got the attention, the media attention that I have, it's, it's very few. So I, I wanted to make a statement about all the different types of literature that can fall under German language literature. And it's not a very typical language. It's not a very typical story, but it still counts as German language yeah. literature. That's what I wanted. I applaud you. And I totally agree. A language is a different world on itself. Immediately you use a, a certain language, then all of a sudden you see the world in a different way. Anyway, let me just make a, a quick uh, introduction of what the book is about. We've already mentioned this is uh, the book. It's about a, a, a woman called Ada, or should we say women called Ada, or should we say a woman that reincarnates herself in every century? as Ada. It does not matter. Let's not get into that. The beautiful part about this story is that the first one, which I think is the most original, is that the narrators uh, most of the time are inanimate objects. First, it's the broom. 
And of course, she takes pride on the fact that her bristles are made of uh, palm fronds, not just grass. Which <laughs> <laughs> I really loved that, that part. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was really laughing. I'm like, my, even the broom can, can be vain. <laughs> it was very original. <laughs> tell, tell, us, tell us your thinking when you see me tweeting that. And then it, it shows the humor in the narrative of the oh. book throughout. The reason that happened, the, the story wasn't planned out very well. I, I kind of write and have associations and then I keep on writing and it kind of develops as it does. And I was writing a scene, which is also relatively towards the beginning of the book, where Ada had used her left hand to do something. Okay, so in Ghana, it's a big deal. You know, the, the amount of times I've been punished for using my left hand, I don't even want to, to tell you. So I'd written a scene where... Ada was being told off for having used her left hand. It's a cultural affront. And she was being punished by a a woman she calls her mother. And this mother was hitting her with the broom. And and in my mind, I was like, oh, what does the broom think of this? Does the broom even enjoy being used in this way? (laughs) And then (laughs) that's how it happened that I started to write from the voice of the brooms. And like, you know, I actually, I don't like being used as, as a thing to beat Ada with. I don't agree. Yeah. Exactly. And I loved how the broom took sides and it like it's not going to be silent when it finds itself in a position of unjustness. And then the broom was taking sides. I love I really yes. love that. And and then uh, it also kind of uh, lightens up the book because the book takes up very serious topics and all that stuff. So sometimes it helps the reader to laugh now and then. And then yes. the other narrators uh, at, at some stage a brass door knocker and then the room itself becomes a narrator and then my favorite part is the passport when the passport is a narrator but we will come we'll come to that towards the end because for now i want to say that i suspect every reader has will have their own favorite ada on this book which happens along the historical realms where this this lady or woman ada that lives like first when we we meet her she is a grieved mother in mourning and with sadness because of her childlessness. And at the background, the Portuguese colonizers are forcefully establishing trade posts in Western Africa, especially in places that particularly became what we know as Lagos now. It fascinates me most about how you use this because you put her in, in this situation. And then I was really fascinated when I, I did some research only to find out they actually the characters you are using are real historical characters. And then this just a positioning of uh, an imagined characters with a real one really was a, a, a strike of genius to me. So how did you think about that? Or what were you trying to achieve with it? Yeah, okay. So not all of the characters are based on historical figures, but some of the significant ones. So talked about the people in the uh, 15th century West Africa there's a Portuguese name, the name of a Portuguese merchant that I mention, who's based on a real figure. But to be honest, I didn't do so much research on him. I just okay. looked him up because I wanted people to know this storyline is fiction, but things like this probably happened. Why do we not know? Because the history of Africa has been so distorted and eradicated and, you know, stolen and so I was like, okay, the sources now are missing and they're not just, they didn't go missing passively, but they were actively destroyed. So now it's left to the role of, I mean, in my case, writers to try and imagine how it could have been. And then we have clues, 
we have names, we have objects, and then we can piece something together, which gives us something like a hint of what it could have been like. So I write about this man, I think his name is Diego, and or Diogo. What I wrote about him is simply, I think it's one line even that I took from Wikipedia. He's a, there's this one line where I say he's these three things because history is always told in terms of the big men who did the big things, the big ideas. But the other thing that I write is he made up his story himself. You know, it was up to him to write something like a, a diary or a memoir and to put all his achievements, and I'll say achievements with air quotes, to put them down so that for histories to come centuries later, we people like us will read about him and think, oh, what a great man, you know, he discovered Africa, he did this and this and this. And so that's why I used real names to say, well, this is what we know about him on the Wikipedia page. But actually the story behind it is he was completely lost when he arrived on the West African coast. He thought that there was a king of all of Africa and then was frustrated that he couldn't find this king on the coast just waiting for him. And so, you know, I was just making a joke out of the history as it's told from a particular perspective versus what it was probably really like. Yes, yes, yes. I, I could pick that up. And it was very entertaining because the way you were uh, ridiculing their confusion themselves, they themselves were finding them, themselves at the sixes and sevens. I, I think on my part, you really pulled it off because it really felt real. Didn't feel like... Uh, you didn't go into depth into it in any way. Then we meet now in uh, in Victorian England, in London, an Ada who is mathematically astute and is, I think, is a computer engineer or a pioneer, something to establish the computers and all that stuff. And then again, now, <laughs> what blows me apart is that I, I thought by drawing uh, Charles Dickens in, into it, you wanted us to draw into the conditions of London at that particular stage, I mean, history. And then when I realized that there was actually an other Lovelace who was a, a kind of a known to be the friend of Charles Dickens, and then uh, many people suspected that they, they were having a, an, an affair. <laughs> were you using that other or were just, uh, again, just pulling a piece on it? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad I get the opportunity to say this publicly. <laughs> Thank you for that question. I made up that affair. I just pulled that out of, you know, my wow. sleeve. Well, the reason why I did that is there's two things that happen with that, that section of the book. We are introduced to this woman Ada Lovelace. And as you've said, you hadn't known that she had existed before and many, many people hadn't known. She's slightly more famous now because there've been like children's books published based on her. Ada Twist Scientist is one of them, I think. So there were slightly more people who know about her now in the general public. Mathematicians did know about her. Um, some There's a, a prize named after her and such. But for the most of the public, general public, they'd never heard of her. And it's amazing because she's actually credited with being the first ever computer programmer, even, wow. you know, of all men or women in the world. So um, the work she did was fascinating and we're still drawing from her knowledge to this day. And yet we'd never heard of her, right? Interesting because the person that I pair her with in the novel Charles Dickens, you just have to say his name and already you have images of his books springing up. And I said, so why do we know so much about Charles Dickens and so little about Ada Lovelace? And my thesis is that a lot of it has to do with the fact that at that time, women were not really permitted to take very public roles in their fields. There were women scientists, there were women mathematicians and geniuses on all spheres, but they were required to be quiet 
and in the men's shadow. Often their inventions, their patents were stolen and then made famous by a, a guy or something like this. With Ada Lovelace, I think she did extensive work, but she worked with someone called Charles Babbage and people who know about this time usually know about him more than about her. That was the, the one thing I just wanted to think about, you know, at the time when she was alive, she wasn't even allowed to go to libraries to borrow books. She would have to send her husband or some male companion to borrow the books for her. That's how it was. Then the other thing I did in that section was Ada Lovelace in that section is the kind of cold one, the scientific thinker, yeah, very yeah. rational. And Charles Dickens is kind of the emotional, ah, but you know, why don't you care about me? <laughs> and I, and I, I was thinking of gender roles a lot when I was writing this book and how is it, how do we become women? How do we become men? And what behaviors are attached to each gender? Uh, if you're thinking about it in binary terms. So I wanted to sort of laugh a little bit about the role of Charles Dickens as an artist. You know, I'm also an artist. So I was also laughing at myself. And we think that we're so important because we're changing the world with our ideas. <laughs> Charles Dickens wrote a lot from an, an impetus that he wanted to stop or draw attention to the terrible poverty that was in London in the 19th century. A lot of my yes. writing is about drawing attention to the discrimination faced by black people and um, women, for example. And so I just wanted to think a little bit about that. I mean, these two people did know each other. Ada Lovelace and Charles Dickens did know each other. They had both had extramarital affairs. That's quite well known that Charles Dickens had um, affairs and Ada Lovelace also did. And then I just, for the sake of a good story. How <laughs> <put them> <laughs> love the insinuations you were throwing there. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, we, we are nothing if we don't have poetic license. <laughs> right. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I really, I, I, I think I understood that. And I could see the influence of Dickinson in your book. Unfortunately, I don't read much of Dickinson. My favorite in his over will be uh, The Bleak House. I was very happy to see the influence, your change of tones, your change of narratives, that perhaps it might have also come from that. I mean, I haven't read Dickings for a really long time. I, 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 Dickings was basically my school life, you know. I kind of read some sections of Great Expectations again when I was writing this book because I was trying oh. to describe a particular storyline. And, and also another thing I did was, because I'm writing this book in German, yeah, but yeah. I need to write in a way that sounds like the characters are really in 19th century England. That's quite tricky. <laughs> so yeah. what I did was I watched Pirates of the Caribbean. This is a hot tip with German dubbing. And then I got the language from there. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I, I know the trick you, you were doing so, sometimes also when I, I, I'm writing about a certain uh, time in uh, in history, I go and read books from there just to get the tone right. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I suppose the, the most uh, poignant Edda is the one we meet on the Nazi camp. She's the one who, who takes men into her room, and that's where the room uh, does the narrative. This one, I just found it a little bit, uh, that section, it really, really took a lot out of me. I don't know why. But then... What I noticed when I was reading it is that it's as if you were trying to compare the, the pain of women, black women, Irish women, Nazi women. Was I reading you right there? I mean, slavery and all those things. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question, because I think I understand why people would read it that way. 
I would like to not compare, actually. I just wanted to have them side by side, perhaps, and look at, like, like my main question was, how do we become women? As I said, so what, yeah, what are the things? So yeah. I talked a little bit about, you know, women, um, this particular Ada who lived in 2019 describes how she became a woman very slowly because she then had to take on certain body posture and she wasn't allowed to laugh so loud and so on, you know, this kind of thing. And I wanted to look at these different forms of how it is to be a woman across the ages. And we have, for example, you've just mentioned in the 19th century, there was an Irish woman, that's Lizzie, that's the maid of Ada Lovelace. I mean, and that was two different women again. So you had both women suffering because of the patriarchy, both of them, I would claim. And yet you have Ada Lovelace, who's a noble woman and because of her wealth and because she's English at a time when there's this catastrophic potato famine in Ireland, she still has power over her maid and is also displaying kind of a lack of understanding about her maid situation and and what's going on there. And I wanted to say, yes, being a woman is part of the story, but we are also many different things apart from that or being a man, again, if we're thinking in binary terms. So it's difficult to say I was comparing it in the sense that yeah, I'm ranking, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't like to. Yeah, I used the wrong word by saying comparing. I think uh, yeah. what I was trying to say is that by you were trying to say that our pains are universal and almost similar. You are a woman, like a, you were a slave woman or you were a, one who suffered from the inheritance and history of the potato famine or the nuts and all those things and all that. But no, no, I get you. I, I use the wrong word yeah. by saying comparing. It's something that I've heard before and some people yeah. have criticized it because they say, how can you compare, for example, looking yeah. for a flat? and how difficult it is to find a flat with somebody who's forced into prostitution. So Funny they should say that because that Ada is my favorite Ada, the one in, okay. our, in, our, in, in our time trying to navigate our familiar modern immigrant life and also looking for a place of her own, I mean, away from failed relationships of men in particular, yeah. her boyfriends and her father and all that stuff. And of course, even in this one, I could hear the evocation of a Virginia Woolf's room of one's yes. own. But uh, you did it so originally, and it was so uh, vivid. And then the portrayal of what uh, black women who leave their countries to go for whatever reason, whether it's economical or it's traumatic, it's traumatic they go to the West, the things that they went through they go through themselves. Uh, I mean, to me, if people think uh, other pains are, more, are better than other pains, I disagree. We all yeah, have our, <laughs> yeah, we, we, all, we all have our conditions that we have to navigate on our, on our own the way we know best how. You understand? Yeah, I, I have to add something to that because I'm, I'm speaking from Germany and here there is um, a situation which I also take very seriously, which is that in Germany, everything to do with the genocide on European Jews that took place on, on this soil from Nazis, from German Nazis, this is seen as a great atrocity and should not be diminished. So people are, for good reason, very nervous about trying to put things on the same level and say, or whatever, and they, they say that is the, the most terrible thing that happened, full stop. Now, my position is I want to look actually at solidarity 
and building solidarities. It's difficult for me to think about um, atrocities in terms of hierarchies. I, I can't really go along with that, but I do understand the sensitivities around just saying everything is the same. So what I'm trying to actually do is saying, how can we, in a solidaric way, pe we people, especially who are marginalized and who experience different forms of racism or anti-Semitism, how can we be solidaric with each other? And I, I contend, and many historians agree with me, that if we produce memory of atrocities and mourning of atrocities, that it doesn't have, it's not in competition with each other. And then the more likely it is that we can avoid these things repeating because yeah. it's about looking for signs when it's starting and how can we then be careful so that things don't develop. Um, and that's why, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy about your comment and I just had to add to that clarity. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you because um, sharing our pain is unbending ourselves. It's like sharing a light. Uh, giving another person a, a light from your own light doesn't take anything away from you. You still have your own light. You are just uh, sharing it and you're making it uh, so that this is how we understand each other. Because I don't know, there are, there's a, a quote I like that at, at the end, what we have is the stories we tell each other. In any case, uh, I really love the parts and dialect and all mm -hmm. that stuff because I uh, I'm happy also that the English readers will be introduced uh, on that because you know how they are, we are in English readers. We think the world only revolves in London and New York and uh, nice. yes. Cape Town. <laughs> so I was, I, I was really, I was really uh, happy uh, that uh, they, they will learn that uh, there are other worlds there, perhaps even That's much nice. more cosmopolitan than wherever they are. What informed your move to Berlin? That was a personal reason. I have um, children who have German family members. And okay. when I was living in the UK, it was very difficult for me to raise my children bilingually. And this is a, a deep wound, if you will. Uh, in my life, I always regret that I wasn't raised bilingually. My parents chose to speak English with us at home. Um, yeah. And I understand that the decision came about from outside pressure, actually. We were living in England at a time when it was considered to be important that migrant children, I'm not a migrant actually, but yeah, a child of immigrants, that we learn how to speak the Queen's English, that was important. And then it was sort of frowned upon to speak other languages. Perhaps if my parents had had their second language as French, it would have been okay. But the other language was Ga, a language from Ghana, West Africa, that was like not seen as relevant or important. So I didn't learn my family's language and it meant I had no contact, for example, to my grandparents because they didn't speak English. And I deeply regret that. And so when I had children and they had family members who whose first language is German and the same thing, actually, many of the family members didn't speak very good English or the cousins who hadn't gone to school yet didn't speak English. I didn't want this to be the dividing point between us. And it's very difficult to raise children bilingually yeah, <laughs> in England. Yeah. It's yeah. a disaster. So I um, spent some time in Germany. I, I did a kind of a backwards and forwards for a while where I lived in Brighton and in London and in Berlin for a while. And then we ended up moving permanently, as I said, in 2006. And it's just much easier to do bilingual child raising and education here. There's just many more opportunities to do things in English here than there ever will be to do things in German.
in England. So that's how it yeah, happened. I totally get you. My children also are half Scottish. Yeah. Trying to raise them uh, and teach them Corsa when we were in Scotland just didn't work. Disaster! So, <laughs> <laughs> when we're in South Africa, at least I can let them play with my cousins and all that stuff. And then they are forced to speak Corsa among their other age group who won't compromise. Absolutely. And then they, they are forced to learn it and all those things. And of course, my wife was very instrumental that forcing me to uh, speak closer only with them. You'll find out at, at some stage, I could see that they understand the language, but they refuse to answer any. They yeah. answer me in English. Yeah. So when yeah. they play with their peers, with other people at school and on the ground, and they are forced to speak closer, then that's the only time it works. And it has and a then... different emotional impact <laughs> if you're speaking a language with a group of friends and you're just, you know, you're just playing a game and then, then you're using that language. Yeah. So if there's this kind of educational force from your father yeah. you have to let yeah. it's a totally different emotional situation yeah, yeah. and then they, they become rebellious in yeah. Any case. <laughs> yeah the thing also i noticed about all the others uh, throughout the realms is that they all perennially there is that that bracelets that is stolen from west africa by the colonists were you using this in a metaphoric sense, in a sense that as your comment for, say, the reparations to Africa? <laughs> yes, yes. Maybe, I mean, first of all, I should say, I'm really happy if you say that that was your association. I say, yeah. I support it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be the person to say, this is how you should read the story. Um, okay. <laughs> but I can tell you that I received two stipends to write the novel. I, I received something from a German literature foundation, and then I also received some money from a foundation that supports authors. They do this stipend every two years. The author is supposed to write the novel that captures the spirit of the year that they're writing in. So Ada's Raum, Ada's Raum in German, I got the award for 2019, which is Part of the reason why the main part of the novel is set in 2019 in Berlin. And at that time, when I was writing, there were plans for a museum, a new museum to be opened in the center of the city. The museum was to be called the Humboldt Forum. It has been opened by now. And there was a big controversy because the whole point of the museum, they wanted to display the artifacts that they'd been collecting in other ethnological museums and put them on display in this new building and, and invite the whole world to come and see these artifacts. However, you know, parallel to this, the movements in Germany, Black German movements, African movements, African diaspora movements and their allies were saying, look, this stuff is stolen. You know, for example, the so-called Benin bronzes. It's been yeah. stolen. It's looted from um, present-day Nigeria. And the people want their stuff back. <laughs> and yeah. so the, the people who were trying to plan oh, the museum, yeah, they were being criticized heavily at the time I was writing. So the bracelet in my novel was a kind of a symbol of these artifacts that have been taken from West Africa that have, you know, this bracelet ends up in 19th century England and the family... Um, believes that this bracelet belongs to them, believes it's a family heirloom. That was actually kind of like a nod to the royal family that has all these crown jewels. And <laughs> a lot of the diamonds just came from former colonies. And, you know, <laughs> they're trying to claim that it belongs to them, but we know it doesn't. We know it doesn't. And they're yeah. sitting on stolen and blood diamonds and stuff. So 
I was like, okay, so this bracelet it appears in 19th century England, it disappears again, then it appears in the concentration camp in Germany. And that's a similar story that when people were taken to these Nazi concentration camps, they were stripped of all their belongings, people lost their homes, people lost all their valuables, and they were just reduced to nothing. Um, and then after all this, the bracelet turns up in 2019. And the, the, the literary trick I used was not to show the actual bracelet now. There's an image of yeah. it in the museum catalogue. And the reader knows more than Ada knows. The reader knows, oh, that's the bracelet that came from there and travelled to there and was taken there. Ada is <laughs> simply asking the question, how comes there's a West African 15th century bracelet sitting in a Berlin museum? What is this? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a touch of brilliance. And also what you're trying to do from being too pandatic, pandatic and all that stuff. We can talk forever about this uh, novel of deep complexity and uh, amazing ironies. All I can say is that as capacious as a novel, it is as strong and heavy the topics sound. The book reads very well. And also the others themselves, for those who are curious, they meet, overlap, let me say, in a geographic landscape, in time slips, and then in as spirits, and that, of course, African promiscuous spirits <laughs> that can be produced, they overlap everywhere, they interact in a wonderful way sometimes. So I would urge everybody to take their time and uh, read this important book. It's not one of those books you think you're going to just read overnight. There's so much on it. It implores you to take it slow and then learn. Yeah. And then at some stage, at some, at some time, perhaps uh, in the initial chapters, you might feel at odds. So just relax and trust the writer. And then at some stage, everything opens up and then you understand. It comes together so wonderfully. Thank you for writing this uh, wonderful book. I'm looking forward to reading your next book. Can you tell us if you want, that is, if there's anything what you're working on at, at the particular moment? I can say I am definitely working on something. Then it gets shaky. <laughs> like I am working on a novel and it will be set in Germany in around the time 1972. I just chose that year because that's the year I was born. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. And what I wanted to do is to look at varied different experiences of being black in Germany. So it's a married couple. He's an African-American GI who was stationed in Germany and he marries an Afro-German woman. Her father was from Cameroon and her mother was a white German. And so the two of them have very different experiences of being black in Germany. And, and that's kind of like the starting point. And then, yeah, I'll need a, I'll need a few more months and then I'll tell you the rest. <laughs> okay, all the best. Good luck with what is coming. Sharon Dodua Otto, whose books, Ada's Rim, was first published in Germany and translated now into English. In South Africa, it is available in all major bookstops and is distributed by Jonathan Ball. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening. <laughs>